Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're going to invite the Palace Chuck family to come up, and they're going to do the first Advent reading for us and light the first Advent candle. Hope. The candle of hope, the prophet's candle, is a reminder that Jesus was not an afterthought in salvation history. He is the center of it. From the moment that we fell in the Garden of Eden, hope was born. That first promise, that the seed of the woman would one day defeat sin and death, was about Jesus. Soon God revealed the pathway he would travel on his way into humanity, the nation, the tribe, the family, the birthplace, the virginal nature of his arrival, all revealed through the prophets of old. With every promise, hope grew. When suffering and darkness overwhelmed God's people, it was a hope for Jesus' coming that allowed them to preserve and believe in a brighter future. We live on the other side of that hope. Jesus has come and gone. He fulfilled the prophet's words. He died and rose again. He paid for our sins. In him we have eternal life. Now in our times of suffering and darkness, we look to him as our hope. Hope for answered prayer. Hope for forgiveness. Hope for life after death. Hope for his coming again. Hope to see power in our world. Hope for his daily mercies. Romans 15:13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, you are our hope. We long to, for you to reveal yourself to us each day. We long to see you face to face. May our hope in you sustain us in every part of our journey until you come again. Amen. We light the candle of hope today. I have been thrilled um, to kick off a new series starting today that's going to run all the way through Advent. And if you're thinking to yourselves this morning, if that series titled Light of the World, if you're thinking that it's going to deal with the birth of Christ and other Christmas-related themes, you are absolutely correct. You are absolutely correct. We are going to be doing a Christmas series So I have a question for you this morning, and that is, has anyone ever heard of celebrating Christmas in July? Okay, okay, good. A few hands up. Because my wife is a big proponent of celebrating Christmas in July. She gets an itch every every year around around the beginning of July. Uh, Every time we hit about Canada Day, she starts getting this itch to celebrate Christmas. And I keep reminding her, it's only a few months away, just hold on. It's okay. But for some, and I'm pretty sure it's probably some silly millennial tradition that we started where we just created a holiday where there wasn't one because we need more time off, but that's, that's a complete aside. Celebrating Christmas in July is all about bringing back the feelings, the food, the lights, the sounds. Because Christmas, as the world has now largely celebrated it, has a tremendous emotional impact. There are so many things that we associate with Christmas that have a strong connection to feeling good about the world, to things like peace and hope and joy. 
What we celebrate at Advent in the church and in our faith tradition is, is evidenced in the world, but without the candle at the center. It's all celebrated without Christ. So maybe you've, maybe you've heard of celebrating Christmas in July. If not, you just heard about it today. But have you ever thought about looking for Christmas in Genesis? Have you ever thought about looking for Christmas in the Old Testament? Because that's what we're going to do today and hopefully over the next few Sundays as we anticipate the arrival of Christmas and celebrating the birth of Christ. We're going to do just that. We're going to look to the Old Testament in order that we might see Christmas. Or better put, that we might see Jesus, since Jesus is the center of our celebration. Now, I will confess, like Paul, I am an avid movie lover. I love cinema. I love movies because they tell stories. And that's what I love. I love stories. The different ways that stories can be told and the impact that they can have. However, this might come as a shock to Paul, and and him and I will work through this, but we might differ a little bit on our movie tastes, all right? So, has anyone also ever heard of a little movie called The Sound of Music? Oh, brings joy to my heart. Now, in the movie, The Sound of Music, they, they sing at one point, they sing these words, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. So let's do that. We're going to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. And when we think of the gospel, the story of what God has done through the personage of Jesus Christ, we actually find ourselves beginning at the very beginning. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Where we are told that there is a hint of a coming redeemer, the one who is the very seed of the woman. So let's read Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the chapter front to back. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? But the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to? And the man responded, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. 
And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And this is the verse we're going to focus on today. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I find it helpful personally, to think of the Bible as a bit of a two-act play. So I will, I'll, I'll enter into a time of confession before all of you this morning and admit to you that growing up, I was an absolute drama geek. I loved theater, probably why I enjoy the sound of music, all right? I'm, I'm going to correlate those two things. But I loved theater. I enjoyed it. I was involved in many drama productions in school growing up because I loved to be able to tell stories. And just like a play, there's typically two acts. And I don't know how many plays you guys have gone to or attended through the years, but typically you don't come for one half. If you come for the first half of a play, you get to know all the characters and you come to know the story, but you don't find out what happens. And that's really not the purpose of attending. That's not very much fun. And likewise, if you've ever attended a child's play late and you've entered halfway through the production and you come for the second half, you get to know what happens in the story, but you have no idea who the characters are. You don't know the context. And so the play doesn't always make sense. Scripture is very similar. Our Old and New Testament are two acts of a play. Alternatively, you might think of the Bible as a bit of a mystery novel, maybe a, a detective thriller, a whodunit where the early pages, you get hints, you get some, some stories and some images, and as you read more and more, you discover exactly what was involved in those earlier pages. And so it's very important that when we look at Scripture this way, especially as we're coming to it this morning, out of the blue, and when we look at chapters like Genesis 3, we keep in mind what we're told towards the end of the book, what God reveals later in Scripture. Take, for instance, what is said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What begins in the Old Testament, he fulfills in the New Testament. And it requires us applying both to reveal the truth of Scripture. Now, that verse you're probably not going to put on a Christmas card this year. All right? If you do, good on you. Good on you. Because in, in, in essence, that is Christmas. Right there. That verse is Christmas, summarized in a piece of scripture. It is the one who does what is sinful of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy that evil. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. So this morning, as we take a look at that passage from Genesis and, and what Scripture reveals both through the Old Testament and New Testament, I'm going to ask you to consider three things. First, the context. Like any good play, we need context. We need to understand and discover the record of the entry of sin into the world. And that's what we discover in Genesis, the record of entry of sin into the world. Secondly, we're going to go through the consequences of that sin entering the world. And then finally, we're going to look at the cure, the cure that entered the world. So three C's, three-point sermon, very simple, all of you should be able to follow. 
All right, so context. Let's look at the context. What do we find when we read these opening chapters of Genesis? Well, we're dealing with a historical event, a real event that played out and determined the eternal destiny of mankind. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Now, some theologians might actually disagree with that, and even in the midst of my seminary training, I would interact with a number of individuals that had a deep faith who would state that this is simply a big mythology, a story created to explain how things are, and that these opening chapters might just be a concept, but they had no basis in time and history. Well, I struggle with that. Because it is in this story that we are provided the introduction to man's relationship with God, and I have to take that as an actual fact, because the way God interacts with Adam and Eve, he still interacts with us in the same way. We're given a template for how we are supposed to obey God, and we're given a template for how we respond in our rebellion. God has created the world before us. Before there was time, before there was anything, there was God, and God made the world He made it for his glory, and he made it to help us know him, to love him, to trust him. So if you find yourself saying this morning, why do we even have a world? Why do we have a universe? Why do we have everything before us? Well, the answer to that that the Bible gives is that God made it to manifest his own glory in order that we might know him, that we might learn to love him and to trust him. And so, again, when we read Genesis, you find that he lit up the darkness, he filled the void, and he put within our very reach everything that was beautiful, delightful, attractive, enjoyable. And he made Adam and Eve as, as if you like, his special additions. They are unique aspects of creation because there's no one like them. We are all the byproduct of creation. They were the first. They came from the dust and they came from a rib. They were unique and special to God. And so you find that in Genesis chapter two, right? Adam out of the dust forms Eve using a rib from Adam, and they were created by God. They communed with God. They were perfect for each other. Think about that for a second. Adam and Eve were legitimately perfect for each other. God created them to be in perfect harmony. Now, this, this, is, this is typically what we tell our spouses when we meet them. You're perfect for me. I love you. You're perfect for me. And then you get married, you go through a honeymoon phase, and then you have to confess to your spouse a couple months down the road, they're not so perfect anymore. Maybe not as perfect as you initially thought they were. But God provided Adam and Eve everything to enjoy. They were unique, and they had everything to not only enjoy, but it says enjoy richly. And in the midst of all this splendor, he gave them just one simple test. One little test. It was a test of their trust in him and of their obedience to him. And the question was essentially this. Do you believe my word? Do you trust me? That's what God was asking of Adam and Eve. He told them the plan. He told them where the tree was. It wasn't a secret. He just pointed out and he said, don't eat from it one command. David Atkinson, uh, a theologian, he has written a a number on Genesis, and in my reading this week, he he mentioned a quote that I just love. He says that that this, this passage in Genesis and of Scripture in general, it is a story which catches us up into itself. 
And when I, when I read through my schooling and I, when I read for all the seminary training and, and all the workshops and everything I've done, I always marvel at how perfectly that, that quote encapsulates scripture. The reason being is because this is essentially what happens to every single one of us as, as we just go about our daily lives. As we live, we become enveloped in God's story. We are a part of his story. It wraps us up into itself. And so even just in practice, for example, let's go back to Adam and Eve and the test that's given to them. We realize that this is the test that God actually gives to every single one of us. Do you trust me? Are you going to obey me? That is a foundational question that confronts each one of us this morning. Every single day, that confronts us. Am I prepared to trust God's plan? Do I believe him? Or will I believe whatever I want to believe and do whatever I want to do? Those are our choices. And this choice as as rational beings for Adam and Eve, it's granted to them in the garden. They had free will to act on this prompt. And we immediately find that this then gives them the opportunity to show God that they would obey him. He's giving them an opportunity to reciprocate in their relationship. That they would obey him for one reason and one reason only. Not because it seemed like a great idea, but he gave them that opportunity because he's God. He's God. We are accountable to God. Now it is in this context that the serpent, in all of his perfection, appears. The serpent is real, but he is not ordinary. Again, at the front of the book, remember that, that, that much that is mysterious to us here is clarified as we go further into the book. So if we take a bookend for a second and jump from Genesis all the way to Revelation, in Revelation 12, it says we find the same serpent, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, now a great dragon. Satan is still there. He's at the end of the book. So that's what we're dealing with. Satan, that malignant presence that has existed throughout humanity, was in the garden and he tempted Adam and Eve. And when we're confronted with evil in the world, we're not just dealing with an abstract principle. I have a number of conversations with with a lot of colleagues my age through counseling capacities and philosophical conversations about the, the, the origins of evil, right? The Bible doesn't provide us an opportunity to say that evil is abstract. No, the Bible says we're actually dealing with a malignant personal intelligence that is represented by this creature, that is essentially in this creature. This creature embodies evil. And the strategy of the serpent, the deliberate objective of Satan, is to hinder and, if at all possible, destroy the work of God's kingdom in the world around us by any means necessary and by any means available to him. So we have God, having fashioned this world in all of its beauty, he made it good, absolutely perfect, and in comes the serpent slithering into the garden. Now, the origin of evil is not our concern this morning, mercifully, to me. I will gladly allow Paul to answer that one on another Sunday morning. 
The origin of evil has been debated, and I think it is somewhat lost in the mystery of God. What we know, we know. What we're provided in Scripture, we have. And what we don't know, we can leave alone. But we learn from the dialogue that follows, and notice, notice that the serpent comes to the woman and begins a conversation. The serpent doesn't come to Eve, and he's not holding a proverbial gun to her head. The serpent isn't coming and blackmailing her. All the serpent does is start a conversation. It must have seemed so innocent to Eve. Right? I have a question for you. Did God actually say you shouldn't eat any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course, no. He didn't say that, but he did say you will certainly die. And the woman responds in verse 2. Well... We may eat of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Well, actually, God didn't say that. So now she's actually making the restrictions on herself stronger than the restrictions that God placed on her. God said, you mustn't eat of it. And now, for whatever reason, she takes it up a notch. So the serpent replies to her and says, well, I can tell you categorically that you're not going to die. I know this. You're not going to die. You'll live. So let's pause here for a moment. What are we dealing with in this this conversation? What is the serpent seeking to do? Well, he's seeking to tempt the woman to place distrust in God. He's saying, well, God doesn't really know what he's doing. He's trying to create doubt that the word of God is real and tangible and is to be obeyed. And so she begins to question the goodness of God's instruction to her and to Adam. So let's think about that in contemporary terms. Maybe you hear a voice in your head, as it were, and hopefully it's not an alarming voice. But if you're hearing, if you're hearing a voice in your head saying, this can't possibly be right. The temptation that comes to each of us is for us to distrust God, is to distrust our creator, the one that has put us on this earth. And the same time, it's to question his goodness. Because sometimes we find ourselves saying, well, why would it be necessary to obey such arbitrary and unreasonable rules? Right? That's what culture tends to look at scripture as, a set of, of unrealistic rules and obligations that we just are to follow. You see, the point being made by the serpent is this. God is actually depriving you of what would make life truly wonderful. If you're going to be really happy, if you're going to be fulfilled in your life, that happiness and that fulfillment is not going to be found within the boundaries that have been established by God. God has created an entire garden for Adam and Eve, a marvelous garden in which he walks in and communes with them. He's literally made two people that are perfect for each other, and he's given them one instruction. It's not like they're in a little four-by-four cell. They're in a beautiful garden. They have everything that they need at their disposal. And the serpent is savvy. He makes multiple appeals to different aspects of Eve's humanity within this passage. And the appeal being made to Eve is to the woman's sight. It is an appeal to her stomach. And it's appeal to her intellect. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Verse 6. 
And so the woman saw that the tree was good for food. In other words, her eyes were bigger than her ears, right? We've always heard, we've heard the term, our eyes are bigger than our stomachs. That's going to come into play probably in about four weeks' time when we sit down for Christmas dinner. But for Eve, her eyes were bigger than her ears because God instructed her. He told her one thing, but then the, the, the serpent got her to see something else. She heard that, but her eyes see something else now. It's aesthetically good, and it was desired to make you wise. So so it appealed to her intellect. It appealed to her emotions. It appealed to her design and desire for things to be the way that she would like them to be, not the way that God had instructed them to be. So in short, the lie of the serpent was far more appealing to Eve in that moment than the word of God. So she ate, and Adam ate too. She gave some to her husband. You will notice right there in verse 6 that Adam is right next to her. He wasn't away playing in a flower bed or whatever else was on her honey-do list in the garden that day. He was right there. I will say, if my wife is naked in the garden, I'm probably going to be close by. All right? I, I, I think that's a confident statement all of us can understand and appreciate. Adam is right there. He's not off going and doing something else in the garden. He's right there next to Eve. So he's probably listening to this conversation taking place. Adam ate it too. She eats as a result of the temptation. But Adam eats because his wife led him there. She was tempted to do it. He just chose to disobey God's word. And was helped in doing so by the lie that the serpent had planted. The lie of the devil is always the same. I can make it possible for you to push beyond the boundaries that God has set before you and give you something better. The lie that that the serpent gives Adam and Eve is the lie that he gives every single one of us every single day. Whether we feel we can get a better job or a better car, a a better partner. There's always something better out there that we're chasing after. Because we've been convinced, one, we deserve it, and it's achievable. So Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, and nobody listens to God. That's what we find in Genesis chapter 3. So for the context, Genesis is a historical event. God's creation has been corrupted, and Satan's lie to us is that there are no consequences. Well, let's look at the consequences, because I, I disagree with Satan. We, we have to leave the, the context and look at the consequences of, of the entry of sin into the world, because the certain's promise about their eyes being opened was actually half correct. It was half right, because their eyes were opened, but not to the, not to the delights of God, which he had said to them would be the case in verse 5, not to the delights of being like God, but their eyes are now open to an awareness of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame is a very tangible, real emotion that all of us have encountered at some point in our lives. For me, it was probably the first time I was told not to go get cookies out of the cookie jar, and then I turned around and my mother caught me with one in each hand. That overwhelming guilt was very strong. Their eyes were open to an awareness of guilt and shame in their lives. 
You see what has happened? All of a sudden, they see themselves in an entirely different light. Their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked, it says. They didn't just become naked. And, and, and when I read this, I, I'm pretty confident that they were aware they were naked. They probably just didn't know that there was anything wrong with that. There was no guilt or shame associated without wearing clothes for Adam and Eve. Because that's how God made them, and so that's how we're intended to be. But the guilt and the shame caused them to cover themselves. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the, the whole thing with fig leaves, I've always found rather comical. Okay, the, the fact that Adam and Eve went out and they grabbed fig leaves to cover themselves in front of God, one, fig leaves are not that large, okay? I mean, they're big, but they're not covering a lot, okay? And two, it's God. What are they covering themselves from? But their shame, their guilt just racked them. And that's the issue, you see, because now, with the entry of sin into the equation, all of the perfection of the garden, all of the goodness, it's now been impinged upon by the categorical rejection of God's clear instruction. By their decision, by their own choice to do it their own way, they go into hiding. Right? They sow fig leaves, they make loincloths for themselves, and it says they hide in the trees, in God's own garden. I don't know why they think to themselves God can't find them, but they, they do, apparently. It's a bit of a pitiful picture, isn't it? How often do we cover our sin with fig leaves in our lives? How often, when we encounter shame and guilt, do we seek to cover it up rather than going to the Lord and asking for forgiveness? You think you can cover it up with a fig leaf. We convince ourselves that we can hide our sin. The fact of the matter is, they're just trying to cover it up. They're hiding behind the trees. They've decided that the communion that has been broken, and because they've alienated themselves, they don't have, a, they don't have anywhere to go. Adam and Eve didn't know what was outside the garden. All they knew was those four walls. But do we not do the same things in our own lives? I know I certainly have. I stand before you this morning in the four months that I've been here. I've had an opportunity to share my story with some. I have struggled with sin in my life. I have struggled hiding sin in my life. And at no point was it ever successful. At no point did it ever get me where I wanted to go. The only thing that's gotten me there has been Christ. So what's happened here? What's happened in this story? Again, let's go to the back of scripture for a moment. And in Romans chapter one, we are told that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in this first chapter of Romans, Paul writes this entire section on unbelief and its consequences. That's what they've done. They've put unbelief in the relationship with God and now they're dealing with the consequences. God's truth exchanged for a lie of the devil, and they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God, in other words, all of the transcendent beauty and holiness and loveliness that is represented in God's creative handiwork in the garden and in their lives has now been tainted. They're diminished. 
And the tragedy of man is not simply that we break the law of God, but it is now that we are spoiled from all that God created us to be in the first place. We are no longer what God intended. And so since the garden, everything God has done has been on one mission to get us back to the garden, back to a place where we can be in direct relationship with him without anything separating us. I was reminded this this week uh, of a wonderful quote. I love C.S. Lewis. I've read a lot of C.S. Lewis. And he, he makes this one quote in which he says, in our attempts to fix that, and by that he means sin, we are like children making mud pies in a puddle at the side of the street when the creator has prepared for us a beautiful vacation at the ocean. We try to fix our perilous condition by our own endeavors. Adam and Eve made their choice to bow uh, to, to the things that God had made rather than to bow to God himself. Beauty and intimacy are replaced with brokenness and isolation, and they are about to be banished. However, before this banishment takes place, God comes to seek them out. That's quite wonderful, isn't it? In verse 8, they heard at the, sound, the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they do that? They had communion with God. What has changed? I imagine in this moment, they're probably thinking, well, we don't want to talk to God right now. I mean, he might, he might actually approach us about our disobedience. I probably don't want to have that conversation with God right now. In all my years of ministry, and in my own life personally, this is probably one of the large reasons why people don't attend church. At least not a church where the gospel is preached on a regular basis. Because God will speak to you about your sin. God has definitely spoken in my life about my sin. But he does it out of grace and mercy. God exposes our sin in order that he might cover it. He reveals it in order that he might forgive it. And rather than us attempting to cover ourselves, God seeks to make it so that we have nothing to hide. Do you know how many people are running around hiding in the, tree, uh, the trees of their own rebellion? Trying to cover up their own shame? Trying to cover it up in some measure with religion itself? God calls out to Adam and Eve. And isn't this one of the wonderful truths that we see all throughout Scripture? That God calls us out? That God seeks us out? He comes to us where we are, not where he is? God is the one that extends the olive branch. But Adam and Eve, they are fearful in their evasiveness. And the reason that God calls out in this way is not because he needs information he doesn't already have, that's clearly not the case, but in order that he might express both his justice and his love and his appeal on this day of reckoning. Going forward in the book into the Gospels, we're going to jump back and forth a little. Going forward in the book, we have this little cheat of a man in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 19, Zacharias. You guys remember the story of Zacharias? He's hiding up in a tree. 
Why does he go up there? He goes up the tree because he's one, he's tiny, and probably the tree was the only safe place for him. Given that none of his friends liked him, they couldn't stand him because he was a cheat. And he robbed them. He was ashamed, it says, that he was a thief. So he is struggling with guilt and shame. What happens? Jesus calls out, Zacharias. That's fantastic, isn't it? I'll confess, I'm still learning a lot of your names. I don't know everyone's names. I've only been on staff about four months. I would say I probably know, conservatively, 20% of your names. But God knows everyone. God knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you've done, what you're struggling with, and what you need. So much of our life, we are preoccupied trying to figure out what it is we need When God already knows the answer, all we have to do is seek him out and he's going to lead us there. I find it strange that Eve should be so preoccupied with the tree. Why was Eve so preoccupied with this one tree in the middle of the garden? John Milton, a fantastic author in a book called Paradise Lost, describes Eve giving reverence to the tree bowing before the tree. She who would not bow before God bowed, she who would not bow before God who made the trees bowed before the tree itself. That preaches. That's probably an entire sermon right there, just encapsulated in that one statement. Because that is what we do, isn't it? We have a preoccupation with the now, with the material, with our stuff. We struggle, like Eve, as a result of sin in the world, with bowing to the things that God has made and not bowing to God himself. We come up with excuses, repeating all those stories in Scripture where the disciples, the prophets, Israel where all of them struggle to come face to face with the creator because they're more concerned about the now, they're more concerned about who they are and what they have rather than what God is leading them towards. And you might be sitting here today saying, number one, Brennan, I don't believe he made all of this. Maybe you're saying, I don't believe he made me. You could be thinking to yourself, I don't believe that it even matters. God doesn't exist. You're just talking about potential scenarios. But you see why this is a story that catches catches us up in itself? It forces us to respond. Whether we like to or not, we respond to God. We are not passive observers in life. We make choices and we become a part of God's story. And so God God judges the serpent with a curse. It's right there in verse 15. That verse that I said I was going to talk about, we're getting there. I will put enmity. There's going to be conflict between you and the woman. Then between your offspring and her offspring. And then you will notice that it goes to the singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, who is the he? That's the question, right? Who is he? The hints are there. 
Here's the first hint of the one who will deal with the marauder and this malignant influence, the devil himself. The implications of this curse on the earth are extended in the immediacy of Adam and Eve's exit from the garden. When he says to them, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Are we to understand that this is simply an expression of the physical pain that is involved that we as men have no knowledge of at all? Probably. But beyond that, I would suggest that there is a greater pain in childbearing. In my experience as a youth pastor working with teenagers and children, one of the constant things that I have entered into conversation with parents of is that beyond the pain of childbearing, there is a pain in bringing a child into the world, into a sinful world. Watching a child grow and not knowing where they will go, how they will go, what they will believe, and even for some of us, the pain and sadness that we experience when we lose a child. And people ask, why is the world this way? It is this, the world that we know this morning, the world that we inhabit, is not the world that God made in its perfection, but it is a world that, the, that man has spoiled in his rebellion. God then tells Adam something. He tells him that he's going to go back into the garden. He informs him that, you know, Adam, you've been sweeping up around here, you've been sweeping up around the garden, you've been tending to the garden, but because of sin, I've got news for you. You're gonna end up back in the garden. You came from dust, and to dust you will return. This death is a result of sin. One of the things that the world teaches us, one of the things that culture continually tries to reinforce is that us as a species, humankind, is on the ascendancy. We are going from down to up. We are increasing in our knowledge, our intellect, our power, our technology. We are on the rise. But something scripture reinforces for us is that is not the case. Because of sin entering the world, we are actually from up going down. We experience death. Death was not always intended, but it is now a consequence of sin entering into the world. And in terms of the conflict and the enmity between the one who will bruise the, he bruise the head of the serpent and the one who will bruise his heel, this, this is the great conflict the Bible talks about. One of the underlying plot lines of the whole Bible. It's not about David and Goliath. It's not about the Philistines and the Israelites. It's about God and the devil and us being in between. You don't have to go very far in your Bible to find the fulfillment of this. Because if you turn the page, you will find when Cain kills his brother Abel. The rising animosity of humanity against God's word and God's plan is then revealed by the time you just get a few chapters into it with the building of the Tower of Babel. Then the concept was that they could build their way up to the heavens, that they could become like God. The cure. If there's context that we find in Genesis, if we understand there's a consequence of sin coming into the world, what then is the cure? 
Well, those, that, those of us that believe in Christ, we know who the cure is. We know what the cure looks like. It is our personal salvation that we find in our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who would, who would step on the head of the serpent, promised all the way back in Genesis, has been realized. We're not waiting for a cure. The cure has arrived. The cure is when the Garden of Eden, which has been turned into a desert, eventually is turned back into a garden. And you're, you're going to ask me, Brennan, where is that? Remember bookends? Bookends. Genesis, Revelation. When garden, or when desert becomes garden. In the meantime, however, Romans 8 tells us that all creation groans in travail, waiting for the redemption of the sons of man. See, the first Adam flunked it. He screwed up. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, but the second Adam, the second son of God, Jesus, he succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded in the Garden of Gethsemane where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sins. All throughout scripture, there is affirmation of the one we find in Christ. All the way back in Genesis, we are promised him. And the remainder of scripture, the remainder of the play, is all about us getting to Jesus and then experiencing what we are now to do with him. Because he bridges the gap between us and our creator. At the outset of this morning, I talked about Christmas in July, and even though we had a beautiful Chinook this past week, and it looks closer to July outside than it probably does to December, Christmas is coming. There are loved ones to see, there are gifts to give, there's baking to share, and as we prepare our homes for celebration, the more important thing than this outward preparation is in our inward preparation. This Advent season is a beautiful reminder to prepare our hearts as we prepare our homes. As we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus, and as this morning we lit the candle of hope, is your heart filled with hope? Do you have a confident expectation of your tomorrow? What happens when the road ahead is filled with loss and stress weighs your shoulders down? When confident expectation for tomorrow dwindles, what can you do? How can you walk in hope when you feel hopeless inside? Our cure is found in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and Jesus was bruised for our sin and crushed for our iniquities. We have the cure. And so as we celebrate the first Advent Sunday, as we celebrate hope, do you have hope in the cure? Do you have hope in Jesus? There's a few apps that I want us to run through. One, what are you using to cover up sin in your life? What do you need in order to encounter God this morning? Is there something standing in the way of you putting your hope your faith in Jesus. Two, are you seeking to obey God 
or attain knowledge, you're going to make a choice. We all do. The choice is yours. And three, where is your hope? Is it in the world? Is it in religion? Or is it in Christ? Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of Scripture. Any confusion we experience is the result of sin in the world and our desire to cover ourselves from your sight. Thank you, thank you that Jesus has come. Thank you that there is a Redeemer and that one day we will praise your glorious grace alongside you in the garden. We pray this morning that you would be the light in the world and that we would shine your light and be an extension of your love and mercy this Christmas season as we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.